My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And if you hear congestion in my face, it is because I am under the weather. So um, do me a favor. If you see me, give me a air high five. I'll do an elbow. I sanitize about every minute and a half just to make sure I honor, honor you guys. You'll notice that nobody's sitting in the front row, by the way. And so... Apparently, I've scared them off. I know what you're all thinking, and no, I don't have that. And so, um, I want to give you a quick uh, announcement before we jump into the message today. Um, This Saturday, I'm so excited, is our vision dinner. I want to tell you a little bit about what that is. Our vision dinner is an opportunity for the leaders of the church um, to come before you, the body here, and share with you what we're looking at in terms of the future. We're going to be looking at um, where we're at on church planting, on a building um, expansion, also looking at what God did in 2019. It's really exciting. Um, It's going to be at Maggiano's uh, in Schaumburg. And guess what? It's completely free. We would love to take you out to dinner. Um, You might be new. You actually might be newer to the church. This might be your very first time, and you would like to figure out um, who these people are. And so we'd love to invite you. We'd love to invite you to come with us and uh, eat with us and hear what God's doing. And it's a great opportunity just to get to know the church. We design uh, the entire night for those who are newer, but also those who have been here for a while, and you want to know where God is taking us into the future. So that's this Saturday. Now, here's the catch. Um, you have to sign up today because we are sending in the numbers today. So go to the hub, um, vcobhub.org. You can sign up there, Vision Dinner. Please do that. Um, do that today. When do sign-ups close, Village Church? Today. And it's a Saturday. We'd love to have you. Awesome. As you guys know, I have many awkward conversations. It's a joy of my life. My motto is awkward is Awesome. I love it. So I am talking with this uh, guy a couple weeks ago, and uh, he's dropping F-bomb after F-bomb, talking about women in derogatory ways, and, and he's just going and going, and I'm listening. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then he finally realizes he's doing a lot of talking, and so he asked me the question, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Awkward is awesome. I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And he's like, <laughs> sweet. But it was funny. Because the, the conversation turned pretty quickly, and it actually got very vulnerable, and we started talking about life, and, and, uh, and then he asked me, uh, he, said, he said the following question. He said, when were you called into ministry? What I wanted to say in that moment was, we're all called into ministry, and if you have trusted in Christ, you have a ministry calling on your life, period. It's not just for pastors, it's for everyone. And, and uh, now, I, I didn't know if this guy had ever actually really, truly understood trusting in Christ, etc. And, and so I didn't get all sassy and sarcastic with him. Um, but I knew, I knew what he meant. And so when the Bible even talks about calling, um, we have these notions of calling in, in the church and in the world. But uh, when the Bible talks about calling, I want to break this down into to a really a simple definition in two categories. Uh, very simply, calling, it's any responsibility that God asks you to take on. Uh, It's any responsibility that God might come to you and say, hey, I've got a job for you. I've got something I want you to do. Some callings are for life. So when he calls you to trust in Christ, that's the first major calling. But then he might ask you to do something that's a one-time thing or might ask you to commit to a ministry for a season. Um, God asks us to do all different kinds of things. And so that's kind of the general sense of the word calling. Uh, I want to break down calling into two separate kinds of calling. And here's the first one. We'll call this ministry calling. 
Every follower of Jesus has a ministry calling. Everybody. If you don't know what your ministry calling is, we'd love to work through that with you because God has designed every single follower of Jesus to have a ministry calling. This is where you use your, you use your gifts and you serve and you bring the kingdom of God to earth through your specific ministry and your sphere of influence. It might be really small. It might be really big. It doesn't matter, but God has something for everyone who is trusted in Jesus. The second kind of calling we're going to call interrupting calling. These are the moments of your life where God blows up everything. And he's like, Hey, I see that you've got this schedule and this rhythm. Can we just kind of throw that out the window for a little bit? I want to redo some things. I want to interrupt your life. And so here's a couple examples of interrupting calling. Um, Maybe God has interrupted your life and your schedule and asked you to commit to being a student ministries leader. That means you're there on Thursday nights. Those are gone. Sunday mornings, you're working with kids. You might be discipling people. Your text messages are blowing up, right? It's actually an an intrusion on your life to work with junior high and high school students and invest in them. But is it absolutely worth it if God calls you to it? Everybody say yes. Absolutely. And it's sacrifice, and it's your free time, and it's some of your evenings. And right now, our students are just getting back from a retreat, and there's adults who've given up their entire weekend of sleeping in and hanging out with students and loving on them and pointing them to Jesus as we partner with moms and dads in discipleship. For some of you, it might be um, jumping onto a core team. Um, you've always kind of served haphazardly, and so the Lord's like, I'm going I'm to blow up your schedule. I want you to take real ministry ownership and a significant ministry in our church. And I want you to jump in, and I want you to actually like um, sacrifice your time, and you're going to be in meetings and planning, and, and there's going to be demand on you, and people are going to need you quite a bit. And so maybe you're jumping in, and the Lord blows it up there. Maybe for some of you, he's called you to be an elder or a deacon, and, and uh, this is a good thing you've thought about, but the Lord's like, hey, it's time to really move this forward. And he's going to kind of intrude on your sense of homeostasis and normality. Maybe for some of you, he's jumped into your life and said, hey, it's time for you to start a neighborhood Bible study. You have really good relationships, you know the word, and your neighbors don't know Jesus. In fact, what we learn statistically is that 50% of people are willing to jump into a Bible study if they are asked and you're semi-normal. Keyword, be normal. Um, But people are actually willing to do it. 90% of people, statistics say, won't even be offended if you ask them or invite them to church. Is that interesting? And the 10%, you probably already know who they are. Anyways. Maybe God's asking you to be a missionary and he's saying everything you, everything you've known about your life and normality, we're going to throw it all out the window because I have something very different in your life. God loves to interrupt our status quo. He's really, really good at it. Now, some of you, and I know this, you have never felt like God has given you an interrupting call. And benefit of the doubt, if he did, you would say, here I am, send me. Now, it might be hard, it might be gut-wrenching, but benefit of the doubt for most people who follow Christ, if God asks you to do something profoundly difficult and different that interrupts your entire status quo, you would do it. I believe you would, most of you. Most of you. One or two of you, maybe not. (laughs) But here's what I've learned. There are some things that God has in store for you and I that if he gave them to us now would crush us. Maybe even worse 
if God gave you those things now, you might crush a lot of other people. For example, if I became lead pastor of Village Church when I was 23 years old, it would have been an utter disaster for everybody. Can I get an amen from anybody who knew me at 23 years old? Handful of you did, right? The calling was far beyond my character or my competency. And so there are things that God may have in store for you later. And right now he is preparing you for those things. You have no idea what they are. And typically interrupting calls, they kind of just come out of nowhere. You're like, whoa, I didn't even see that one coming. And the Lord just kind of breaks into your normality, into your schedule, into your life. And he's like, I've got something kind of different for you. Uh, We've learned with interrupting calls is they actually take seasons of of preparation. Like many of you don't even know this, but you're being prepared for an interrupting call that's going to be coming into your life inevitably. Uh, Right now, God is asking you to be faithful in very specific things. And whether or not you're faithful determines the timing of the interrupting calling. Isn't that interesting? Let me share with you four ways that God prepares us for these interrupting calls. Number one is through risk. God prepares us by asking us to do difficult things. I've generally found that following Jesus, almost everything he asked me to do is somewhat difficult to one degree or another, right? This is part of how he does things. He asks us to do things that are continually stretching and expanding our areas of comfort. But one of the ways that God prepares you for interrupting calls is he asks you to do difficult, risky things, uh, number two, what happens is God prepares you through pain. Now, what you, what you may not love about ministry is that all ministry will result in some kind of pain inevitably. And the greater the ministry responsibility, the greater the pain. Do you know why there's pain in ministry? Because it's about people. And you're there. We hurt people. Not, not on purpose. Well, some of us, not on purpose. Most of us. But the moment you start interfacing with people, like things can hurt pretty badly. And because ministry is all about people, it's not about empires or egos, it's about serving God by serving people, ministry can be excruciating. And so what happens in pain is that we find that many people get stuck right here in the pain place. This is where most people give up. But if you lean in, If you lean into the uncomfort, the irritatingness of people, the pain, sometimes the hurt, if you lean into that, what happens is that not only does God strengthen you, but he prepares you for the next calling that he has for you. Which brings us to number three, which is overcoming. That when you're able to go through the difficulty of ministry and people and pain, and you're able to overcome, there is a resident strength built inside of you. So it's like working out. When you work out, it hurts for a little while, but after the pain goes away, you are stronger. And you are now capable of handling that much more weight. Now the challenge is that most people can't get past the pain to overcoming. And they're stuck in this vicious cycle of pain year in and year out. Step number four, repeat. Prep comes through reps. That's it. And so what you find is that God is asking for faithfulness and he's asking for you to go through the pain because ministry is always going to result in some kind of pain. He's asking you to overcome and then you start this process over again. Till the day you die, if you want to do things for God in behalf of God, it's going to mean interfacing with people and there's going to be pain and that means you're going to have to overcome this. This is just a hard part of life and doing things for God. But I'm telling you, it is completely, 100% always worth it. So this morning, um, our text is going to answer the following question. What happens when you don't get past number two, and you're stuck in the pain thing for year after year after year, and you never overcome? 
What happens when you fail miserably, publicly, embarrassingly? Can God still really use me? I'm going to give you a foreshadow to the answer. The answer is absolutely 100% yes. So Exodus chapter 3, open up your Bibles there. Moses has messed up everything. At 40 years old, uh, he kills an Egyptian, and uh, the Egyptians want him dead. The Israelites, his blood people, want nothing to do with him. He has one option at this point. His one option is to run as far away as fast as he can to save his life. We get to Exodus chapter 3 verse 1, and now we are fast forwarding about 40 years. So the text just flies into the future, okay? And now we get to Moses, and he is roughly 80 years old. He's married. He's got a family. He's got a job. He's a new man. He's got a new identity. And there's one, I think, unanswered question that lingers over this text. Does his wife or children or father-in-law or family know his deep, dark secrets? Do they know that he's really an Egyptian prince? Do they know that he murdered a man? Do they know that Pharaoh wants him dead? Do they know that he's actually an Israelite? Do they know that he's failed the people of God? Like, do they know any of this story? And there seems to be this secret that looms over the life of Moses. So look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping his flock keeping flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And Jethro, this is a priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So immediately, we're going to learn two things here about Moses. Number one, Moses has shunned his old way of life, his Egyptian lifestyle. In fact, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, I'll put this on the screen for you. It says this, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Moses, 40 years, born and bred an Egyptian. I mean, this is a part of his cultural ethos and values. Shepherds are looked down upon. They are disgusting to Egyptians. And so he, he puts aside this entire old identity of being an Egyptian, and he takes on the very antithesis of Egyptian and becomes a shepherd. Now, the other thing we learn about Moses here is that he's actually really far away from everyone. He's far away from Egypt and from Midian. So look at this uh, map, if you would. This is a picture of, of uh, this whole area of Egypt, you can see where Midian is, and you can see Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, basically the same exact place, um, and so it's going to be a different name later on. And you can see that he's about a month journey or so from Egypt, but he's also a really long way from Midian. Right now, Moses is in the middle of nowhere. He's got a lot of flock, of sheep, or a flock, and he is um, all by himself. So look what happens in verse 2. Some crazy stuff is about to go down unexpectedly. Verse 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now let's just pause. Whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, you the reader, you pause. Because whatever's about to happen is going to be an interrupting moment. The angel of the Lord is nothing less than God himself. The angel of the Lord is, in the Old Testament, Jesus in the flesh. It is Jesus. That is who the angel of the Lord is. Now, some people in their brains, they're like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Theologically, we say these words, he's eternally preexistent. There never was a time when the Son was not. He always existed. 
Now, the difference is before he became a baby 2,000 years ago, that's the word incarnation, he was still the second person of the Trinity with God. Anytime God manifests himself physically, it's not the Spirit nor the Father. They don't manifest physically. It is going to be Jesus. And so when God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, was it the Father? No. Was it the Spirit? No. It was Jesus pre-incarnate or pre-incarnation. So here's what we have. Jesus shows up. And verse 2 goes on. It says, he looked. Now this is, I think this is funny. So I don't know about you, but if I was going to tell the story about when I encountered God for the very first time in a burning bush, I would write a whole lot more. I'd be like, man, there's this bush. It was crazy. There's an acacia bush. It had thorns on it. I couldn't believe it. Here's what I was feeling. Here's what I was thinking. This thing would turn into like a very, very long descriptive book. Not Moses. Moses is literally telling the story. Moses penned Exodus. He's writing the story in such an abrupt way. And he says this. He looked and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. That's it. Any detail. Come on, man. Verse three. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. I just, I can't get over the way he's writing. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, two things you need to know about Moses in this moment. Number one, Moses does not worship the God of Israel yet. Moses knows generally speaking, of the God of Israel, but he does not seem to be a worshiper yet. In fact, number two, Moses doesn't even know the God of Israel's name. Uh, there seems to be this vast difference or, 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 or distance between Moses and the God of Israel. So before God is going to call Moses, God is going to introduce himself and he's going to reveal to him a bit about his nature and character. And here's the first detail he tells him. He communicates to him that I am in no way like the other gods. You have notions in your head from Egypt and from Canaan. I am not like these other gods. Here's what he says in verse 5. Then he said, this is, this is God to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. God is holy, or he is distinct, or he is set apart, or he is unlike all the other gods. Holy carries with it this idea of moral perfection, complete goodness, distinct and separate. He's communicating to Moses, I know you have these notions. Get rid of them, because I have to reteach you about who I am. Number two, the second thing that God wants to tell Moses is this, I know you personally. Whether or not you know me, that's a different question. But I, I know you personally. In verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father. Let's just pause. Which father? He's got three. His Egyptian father? Uh Uh-oh. His Midianite father? His Jewish father? I mean, depending on who this God thinks he is, God's going to relate to him very differently. And here's what verse 6 says. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I need you to read between the lines. Let me tell you what God is actually saying to Moses in this moment. I know who you really are. They may not all know. I know. I know your secrets. I know what you did. 
I know your pain. I know your regret. I know it all. Two things that are petrifying about God. Number one is the glory of God. This is this uh, eminence that radiates from his very presence. I mean, Moses later is going to be kind of audacious and say, um, can I see your glory? And God's going to be like, ah, my glory would crush you to pieces. I'll give you like a glimpse of the back of my glory. And then Moses sees it and his face emanates the glory of God for some time. Like, like if you saw the glory of God without a resurrected body, you'd be, be you'd be obliterated. Well, here's the second, I think, scary thing about, about God. He knows everything about you, your deepest, darkest secrets. You know those things that you don't want your wife to know or your husband to know or your kids to know or your parents to know or your boss to know or your friends to know or anyone to know? Jesus knows every ounce of it. High school, Michael, there's a lot of things I don't want you to know. My high school friends, whenever I'm around them, they feel the unusual freedom to tell everybody about all of my embarrassing high school antics. I'm like, stop telling stories. You're embarrassing me. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I mean, my mother, my mother loves to tell the most embarrassing stories. If Jesus was like my mother, he'd be like, let me tell you all about Michael's deepest, darkest secrets. It's crazy. The Lord knows. I want, I want to bring you to a passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's, it's not a controversial passage, but um, there seems to be a little misunderstanding on the nature of the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. Most people think it's the Bible. I'm convinced it's not, and I'm going to show you why. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 13, here's what it says. For the word of God, I'm going to show you why this is almost absolutely Jesus and not the Bible. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And now the word of God is not just active and alive, but it's going to be doing human things. It's going to be discerning. And the word of God is discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He knows your thoughts and your intentions. And then it goes on. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, to whom we must give an account. I'm not going to be standing in the last day, uh, uh, the last judgment with the Bible in front of me. I'm going to be standing with Jesus in front of me. He's the judge. The Bible is the standard, but he's the judge. And so here's what, here's what I know. There is nothing that God does not know about every one of us in this room And that is vulnerable and that is petrifying, especially if you have secrets. And look what happens in verse six. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He wasn't afraid to look at the burning. He was afraid to look as soon as he realized this God knew who he really was. The third thing that God was going to reveal to Moses is this. I love my people Israel. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. And I think there's a fair question if you're Moses. And what you're going to find, actually, we're only going to get one response of Moses here. There are 13 of them. And Moses is going to take God to task. Moses and God are going to duke it out. Next week is going to be epic. Like, I'm going to show you what not to do with God um, by the example of Moses next week when it comes to calling, okay? Um, but, but here's the deal. Moses, Moses has every right at this moment to say, so you've seen them? It's been 400 years you, you know them? 
and you've done nothing? Okay, I, 40 years ago, I went to battle for them, and they rejected me. Where were you then? I've been running for my life, hiding my truest identity. Like, you could have, like, done this sooner. What took you so long? And, and Moses is learning that God's ridiculously slow timetable has no bearing whatsoever on his presence with you, his attentiveness to you, his awareness of you, his love for you. And I think it's natural that we just assume that if you love me, you'll fix all my problems and take away all my pain. And by the way, is that ever the way God works in scripture? Barely, sometimes, but not often. Usually his love for us is identified in his presence with us. Verse 8 goes on and says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now here's my question if I'm Moses. What is God going to do with me? And it's going to depend, if I'm Moses, on who God thinks I am. So if I know this, God loves Israel. If he's going to relate to me as an Egyptian, which would be fair, he is unhappy with me. If he's going to relate to me just as a, just as a man, I have abandoned his people. I have let him down massively. If he's going to relate to me as an Israelite, I have abandoned my people. I've, I, I had this opportunity and responsibility with leadership and influence to free the people of God, to lessen their suffering, and I didn't do any of that. So if you're Moses and you're thinking this, like, what is God going to do with me? And his point of reference is probably going to be the Egyptian gods or the Canaanite gods. And those gods wouldn't put up with Moses. Those gods aren't gods of mercy and grace and second chances and third chances. And so God is just communicating his nature and his character to him. Our God is different. And God is going to call Moses to serve him despite his past. I love this. Ville's Church, God is calling you to serve him despite your past. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are going to bring us to our so what. So what, number one, can God still use you? Yes, God can still use you. Verse 10, God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people. Look, he doesn't call them Moses' people. He calls them his people. The children of Israel out of Egypt. I need you to step into Moses' shoes for a moment. I think this might actually be one of the more difficult and emotional points of Scripture, and I'll tell you why. Here's fundamentally what God is saying to Moses. Moses, come face head-on your greatest fear. Moses, Come and face your greatest regret. You left your people, the people whose blood flows through your veins and suffering. Out of self-preservation, you abandon them. Moses, come face your greatest failure. You are a murderer. If caught by Egypt, they would kill you. 
Moses, come face your greatest sadness. You abandon your mother and your father and your older brother and your older sister. For 40 years, they've been suffering and you blew it. Moses, come face your greatest secret. You are an Egyptian prince. You're like straight out of a TMZ episode. This is crazy. You're a murderer. You're running for your life. Secret identities. This is nuts. Moses, you have buried this for four decades and I am resurrecting it. You are now going to face your deepest, darkest secrets, your greatest pain. What do you think Moses is going to say to that? Over my dead body. He's going to put up a fight. When you fight with God, who wins? Your past pain very well may be your future ministry. You've, if you've been in Genesis with, with me, you've heard this. Your past pain very well may be your future ministry, but there's a contingency here. If you will let God redeem it. There is no pain wasted by anyone willing to let God redeem it. This is, by the way, a pretty interrupting call, right? Like this is a mega interrupting call. As interrupting calls go, this might be one of the biggest. Number two, God has called you with full knowledge of your weakness. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, notice number one, he doesn't even identify with the Israelites yet. Notice number two, his profound sense of inadequacy, insecurity. And by the way, it's kind of understandable. I mean, do you ever feel this way? Let me tell you, when I feel the most uh, inadequate, it is every time I stand before you with the word of God, and I'll tell you why. I have only the power to make you feel some things sometimes, if you're listening. (laughs) I have no power to change your heart. I mean, you can sit for year after year after year and preach sermon after sermon and empty yourself and pour yourself out. And that stubborn guy or that stubborn woman can sit there with a hard heart year after year after year. If I had the power to change hearts, oh my goodness, I don't. And sometimes I'm like, God, why did you ever even create this whole thing called preaching and teaching? Because really you could just bypass us. But he calls inadequate people without the power to do the very things he's asking them to do crazy. He loves to do this. I think he loves to do it because if good things happen, men don't get the glory God does every time. And so he structures us in our foolishness and our weakness and says, I'm going to position you in a way to make you look stupid. And then I'm going to make myself look good. And that's the way it needs to be. Number three, God is not restricted by your limitations. In fact, he prefers them. Verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. Okay, I just, Moses says, who am I? Like Moses is like, give me some encouragement, right? And, and, and you'd expect like God to be like, Moses, you're so great. Moses, you're the man. Moses, you're strong. Moses, you're capable. Moses, I believe in you. Moses, I have faith in you, right? 
And Moses is maybe looking for some encouragement. And so he's like, Moses is like, who am I? And God's like, I'll be with you. (laughs) You're not answering my question. Who am I? And God's like, that's not important because who you are is going to get nothing done in Egypt. What's going to get it done is I am with you. I I just, I love this. God's like, I know your limitations, Moses. And Moses is going to spend verse after verse after verse over the next week. And he's just, we're going to study this. And you're going to be like, Moses, for the love of God, stop complaining. Just follow the call of God. He's asking you to do something amazing. And this is what God wants you to know. You're right. You're not capable to do the very thing I'm doing. I have interrupted your life. And I've put a calling in front of you that is ridiculous. And it's not possible. And you're going to absolutely need me. But here's the point. I am with you. This is the most oft-repeated promise in the Bible, and it almost always follows God asking his people to do something ridiculously difficult. And this is what God does. He calls us to ministry that is impossible, and even at times painful, and he says to us, I am with you. Which is not what Moses wanted to hear, by the way. And so what number four? God is calling you to help him set people free. Verse 12 goes on. He says, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. And this is the point. Calling, ministry, interrupting calling, whatever. It is all about serving Jesus by serving people. I'll give you an illustration. We think about our building. We think about all the work. If you haven't noticed, like there are men and women doing so much work in our building over the last couple months. It's going to continue over the next couple months. The building is not the point. It never was. The building is a means to the people. In fact, the building of the building isn't the point. The building of the building is about the people. The building of the building is as much about discipleship as the building itself when it's finished, as if that ever happens, is about providing a place for people to be discipled. And it's all about people. And it's about people being set free, whether it's people who don't know Jesus, who need to be set free. And so we create spaces in our lives, in our environments, in our church, in our community, where people can actually meet Jesus and hear the gospel for the first time, or at least meet people who can introduce them to Jesus when their hearts are tender and ready to do that. Or we create spaces here in this building for people who, who know Jesus, but we can push them further and, and call them um, to Jesus Christ in greater faithfulness and call them to repentance of sin and life transformation and worship and community. Like, that's what we do. This is all ultimately about people. And so we come back to Moses. And I, I got to tell you, when we meet people, I am often struck by how many people feel inadequate to actually serve or do something for God. And here's my thought. If God can use Moses and redeem that pain and that rebellion, can he not redeem you? If God can redeem Peter, who rejected Jesus. Peter even had, it seems, racist undertones after the resurrection and ascension. And the Apostle Paul had to rebuke him publicly in a letter to the book of Galatians. Can God still use Peter? The answer is yes. Paul murdered, sorry, Saul murdered people. And God somehow was able to take this and redeem it and do incredible things. And I just look at people and I'm like, listen, we all know we all fall short of the glory of God. And there is much resident weakness inside of every single one of us. And we serve the God who loves to enter into insecure, broken people and then use us. And then when he does, we don't get to step back and say, look how good I am. We get to say, the fact that God would even use a broken idiot like myself is amazing. Every one of us gets to say this. 
And so we give God every single ounce of the glory. So I can't think of a better way to end the sermon than to run to communion and remind ourselves of the cross. You and I have failed, but the blood of Jesus covers our failures. And it is a reminder that we serve the God who has not just covered our sins, but resurrects broken people to ministry and calling. I don't know what your calling is going to be. I do know this. If you have trusted in Christ today, you have a calling from God. If you don't know what that is, you don't even know how to process it, I would encourage you to sit down with a leader, somebody you respect, a pastor, a staff member, your community group leader, a ministry director, a friend, somebody who goes to a different church that you respect spiritually, but sit down and just say, would you help me figure it out? Because I am not in ministry anywhere in my life. For some of you, I think... Um, you're in the pain part, you're in the cycle of pain and you haven't overcome and you've, you've given up and you need, to rem- you need to be reminded that the blood of Christ covers you and the Holy Spirit strengthens you. Let's, let's process this and figure out how to be an overcomer in this next season. Um, some of you, um, the Lord is about to interrupt your life. Actually, there's a handful of people in our church over the last couple months I've been watching God interrupt their life, asking them to give up big things. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what God is asking people to do. And they're not things that are about village church. I'm just amazed what he's asking them to do for the kingdom of God. Our God is an interrupting God. And I can tell you this, that you are, you are correct. You are not adequate to do it, but the blood of Christ has covered your sins and the spirit of God has given you everything you need to follow him wherever he asks you to go. So communion is a time to remember and to reflect and to give God glory and to thank him because had the shed blood of Christ never been poured out for you, you would have no reconciliation with God you would have no ministry calling. You would have no Holy Spirit. All of it started here. So here's what we do in communion. Um, uh, if you are with us and you're from a different church, I want to invite you, if you've trusted in Christ, participate with us. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, our ask is that as the elements pass by, you let them go, you don't partake. The reason we do that is not to make you feel weird, but Because when you partake of communion, you proclaim that you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you're not there, we're just really thrilled that you're here. You actually might be here and you might be in a position where you are ready to trust in Jesus for the very first time. And I want to challenge you to do it. I want to challenge you to place your faith in Christ. Uh, God will forgive you of your sins and give you his Holy Spirit. It'll be the greatest decision you ever make in your entire life is to trust Christ. And if that's a decision you want to make, the elements are going to come by, take them and partake of these elements. And when you partake of them, let it be your first public declaration that you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised again from the dead. We're going to have a time, time of silence and I'm going to pray. We're going to worship together as the elements are handed out. When you um, get them, would you hold on to them to the end of the song? And we're going to partake together as the symbol of our unity in Jesus together. Let's have a time of silence with the Lord.